0: Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. So Palm Sunday, very beautiful story to dive into and to get a deeper understanding of what it means. And in this story, I think it's probably familiar to most of us. We, We have this idea of coming home. Part of the reason why I want to came to Sherry, Alan, be here last week is I wanted to share with you the Jewish perspective through the eyes of someone who is Jewish, what Passover is about, because Palm Sunday merges into Passover. The very reason why we have this story is because back then the Jews were celebrating Passover when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And so, when we look at this picture, then we can see how Jesus is on the colt, entering Jerusalem, and there's palm leaves, or actually, according to some of the Gospels, it's just a branch with some leaves on there to, to celebrate his arrival. But there's a little bit more to it that. When you merge those two traditions, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, then you can look at the Jewish tradition as, yes, celebrating Passover. And as we learned last week, Passover is about commemorating the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. It's the leaving of Israelites from slavery, and as Emily Cady, one of our unity writers, also uh, terms it, is freedom from bondage. The Christian tradition looks at the entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem actually means peace, the habitation of peace, the word Jerusalem. And so it's an entering of peace. And in other words, it's actually the entering into the promised land. Both are happening at the same time. The exodus from Egypt and the entering of the promised land, guess what, without the wandering in the wilderness. That is powerful. So if we merge those two traditions, we're actually getting a sense here of what the potential is that we have access to in our lives. We have the potential to free us from bondage and enter the promised land at the same time. We don't have to wander anymore, even though we all do, most of us but we don't have to. So this is the foundation and the setting upon which I want to set today's Palm Sunday because it's a very powerful image to see us freeing ourselves from the limitations that we put on us and have put on us all our lives and then simply let go of all that and then enter the promised land. So let's look at The story. And I'm specifically using the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem according to Mark. The Gospel of Mark was the first Gospel written. It was written about 40 years after the occurrences that we believe happened in Jesus's year, you know, when he was about 30, 33 years old. In 70 Common Era, Mark wrote the Gospel. And Mark has a very specific way of writing the gospel. He was not very happy with the Romans. Because around the time when Mark wrote the gospel, the Romans destroyed the temple once more, as Jesus predicted during Holy Week. So he was pretty upset. And he kind of like had, what's the term? He had a, a fire to burn, or I can't remember A bone to pick. It's not a fire to burn. It's a bone to pick. See, dog lovers know that right away. So he had a bone to pick. And so that's how he wrote the story. Right? Very different to Matthew. Matthew always tried to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But Mark, whose gospel was also considered the war gospel, was really more interested in seeing Jesus as the Savior from the Romans because he was tired of being oppressed by the Romans. And we can relate to that to some degree, can't we? Many of us have been oppressed in our own way, according maybe to our age, our gender, where we grew up. You know, that kind of oppression that we read in the stories is our own oppression that we experience every day. So the entering of Jesus, then, is the liberation of that oppression. It's a very important way of looking at it. Now, there's four parts to this story. And if you want to look up the sermon notes, there's the scriptures there, and there's a lot more notes on today's sermon, which I can't go into today uh, for time's sake. But I encourage you to read a little bit more, maybe after service or right now. I don't mind if you pull out your phone during service and just study a little bit more. That's always good, right? But there's four parts to it. The first part is Bethany. And you go, Bethany? What? (laughs) How is that a part? He just barely mentions Bethany in the first verse. The second part is the cult. And by the way, the cult takes up most of the story. And interestingly enough, we usually don't care too much about the cult at all. And yet, actually, if you think about it, if a writer writes something, it gives a lot of attention to something, shouldn't we pay attention to? So why aren't we paying attention to the cult? The, fourth part, the third part is the entry itself. And then the fourth part is just a little snippet at the very end where Jesus looks around the temple before he goes back to Bethany. Right? So we all kind of remember that story, right? So Bethany is significant because at that time, Jesus and the disciples weren't staying in Jerusalem. They were staying outside of Jerusalem. And Bethany is a town, and that's actually a real town, that's at the Mount of Olives, just at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And Bethany is significant because in Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus. Do you remember Jesus raising Lazarus? Right? And do you know whose uh, sisters, what the names of the sisters of Lazarus were? Mary and and Martha. Martha. Very good. So they were still living in Bethany. We don't know if they actually stayed with Mary and Martha. But for a gospel writer's perspective, there must be some significance to the idea why he wrote why Mark wrote they were staying in Bethany. One was very practical. Josephus, uh, who is a a Roman scholar who wrote around 100 Common Era about um, whether Jesus actually existed or not, he found records that there was someone who was crucified around that time uh, that bore the name Christos. He's one of the very few Roman writers who who, uh, significantly said, yeah, he existed. It's a historical fact. He also said that there were about 3 million people gathering around Jerusalem at that time, 3 million people. Can you imagine that 2,000 years ago? How many people would that be nowadays? Probably as many as we can fit into a Costco, right? (laughs) huge so it's very clear that you know you wouldn't expect that anyone has any room in Jerusalem so most people would just then find accommodations around Jerusalem and that's what Jesus and the disciples did and then the mount of olives is also very significant because as we know metaphysically mountain means the higher states of consciousness when we walk up a mountain whenever Jesus walks up the mountain always meant that that means us giving us time to lift ourselves up into the higher realm of spirit and understanding. And olives represents love. Love connected to the Apostle John, who was always there when Jesus did any healing. Whenever Jesus did healing, he usually brought Peter, James, and John. John representing the power of love. It's massive how much symbolism is in those stories. And it starts out with that. It starts out with Bethany, where Lazarus was raised from the dead, which means metaphysically, not really physical dead, but spiritually dead. Who hasn't had that experience before of just not feeling connected to God? Anyone? Not feeling a uh, feeling like connected, feeling in any way to nature the universe, just being completely dead, being so immersed in our daily and human lives that we just sometimes don't know what it all means and what it is for. right? That's what it means to be spiritually dead. And in order to raise to rise us up from the dead, we need love, and we need higher understanding. And that's what usually Jesus did. He never healed by touching. Remember? He always healed by giving commandments. Get up and walk. Wake up. Right? That's the power that we have. So then the cult Osana. go Hosanna. Go on. So the colt then is significant because according to the story, Jesus sends two disciples, you know, around Bethany. And he said, go into the town and, you know, find a colt, And it needs a colt because a colt is a young donkey, right? Um, that's unbroken. That's not broken yet. And that's significant. And there's references, not in Mark, but in Matthew, back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And I have it on the sermon notes as well where there is a reference to it, again, predicting that there will be a king entering on a colt. A colt, an unbroken donkey, is free. It hasn't adapted to the limitations of life yet. A colt is like a child who is yet to understand how difficult life we make it sometimes. And it needs to be an innocence that allows us to enter Jerusalem. The other interesting thing about the cult is when the disciples kind of like were untying the cult, someone asked, as Jesus predicted, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, we're taking the cult. You know, we kind of need it right now, but we bring it back. That's Mark, su- sudden, you know, very subtly referencing to, again, the Romans that he really despised. It's the Romans at that point that would repossess anything they wanted from people, any possessions, and they would just take it and never bring it back. And it's actually a symbol of the Jesus, King of the Jews, of borrowing something rather than taking it away and then bringing it back. The entry itself, as you know, is done with Jesus on the colt. First, before Jesus is mounting the colt, the disciples take off their ropes and put it on the colt. And then Jesus is sitting on it, and he's leading the disciples into Jerusalem. But he wouldn't be the only one with the 12 disciples. Remember three million people? Okay? There's going to be lots of crowds behind him, probably. But people were also expecting Jesus to come to Jerusalem because they heard about his power of healing and they heard about his teachings and they wanted to see, they wanted to praise him, they wanted to be with him. So in that entering process, then they used their palm leaves or according to Mark, it was just branches with leaves on it Put it down to honor him because that's how you would honor kings, kings from the Hebrew scriptures. And they would take off their coats again and put it down as well. That's a sign of surrender in a lot of ways. And then finally, Jesus... Oh, boy. You asked for it. I said, I always ask for it. (laughs) The final thing is Jesus goes to the temple, looks around, and then leaves again, going back to Bethany. And as we know, during Holy Week, he actually comes back to teach. That's all he does. He does not do any healing. He only teaches during that week until Good Friday. So that's roughly what the story is about. But Hosanna... Okay, what does that actually mean? Because the people were saying they were shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, right? According to the scripture. But what does it actually mean? It means save, rescue and savior. And if you go by the Jewish tradition in Hebrew scriptures, Hosanna is only ever used to ask for help or to ask to be saved. Whereas in our tradition, we usually see Hosanna as a shout of jubilee, right? We're seeing it as a celebration. Now, I want you to think about this just for a little bit. What if it means both? What if the Jewish people understood that it's not only significance and it's a reason for us to celebrate that here he comes, someone who knows God so well, and is willing to teach us how we get to know God for ourselves, but at the same time is also here to save us because, again, they were tired of being oppressed by the Romans. What if both is true? Scholars debate about it still today. Which one is true? Is one the other? Where are we going? I say let's take both. Both make sense to me, doesn't it? So what does it all mean? Metaphysically, we need to start in the middle. The crowds, as you probably heard already in the absolute word, the crowds are our thoughts and feelings. It's just a representation of how we think and how we feel in our lives. When those crowds are lining up for us and those crowds then are putting down their clothes, which means they're taking away, the clothes, the protective clothes, they're taking away anything that protects them and surrenders what protects them, then our thoughts and feelings are free. They're lining up with the spirit of Christ. As we know, Jesus represents all of us. Jesus is not seen in unity as a person that lived 2,000 years ago and could only do, only do things that only he was able to do. No, not at all. Jesus represents the Christ within, and we have the power to do all those things ourselves. So when we think of Jesus entering, it's us finally realizing who and what we truly are. And when we do that, all our thoughts and feelings stop fighting. They take off their protective clothes and to surrender. That's what it means just that simple entry into Jerusalem. The cult is significant because the cult represents the human side of us. What are donkeys? What's the number one thing that comes, up, comes in your mind when you think about a donkey? Donkeys are stubborn, right? That's kind of like the negative way of looking at the donkey. What is a donkey? Also, it's it has a lot of strength. And has a lot of endurance. The donkey actually represents the stubbornness in a positive way. A lot of endurance. And when we do the work that we ought to do in our lives, then we endure humanity to finally realize our spirituality. And the mounting of Jesus being on the donkey means the mastery of that. Once we get into understanding our spirituality, we get to master even the stubbornness in our own lives we get to master <laughs> hosanna okay before this is over i'm going to be quicker than you are so <laughs> so the cult is really you know has really a lot of significance metaphysically too it's unbroken because when we are innocently living our lives as human beings. We are receptive to our spiritual mastery that we can use. The disciples taking off their clothes and then put it on the colt is, again, their surrendering of their own limitations and give it to Jesus so he can mount and master, the humanity. Remember, the disciples represent the 12 powers for us. Every disciple is one of the powers and them taking the clothes off means that we have all mastered all the 12 powers in that moment. Already talked about Bethany and the temple then as the final conclusion which is not given to us in this story but will be revealed to us throughout the week and I encourage you this week if you have a Bible somewhere, take it out, dust off the dust, okay? open it up, choose any of the gospel where the, <clears throat> where the story is in, doesn't matter. Any version of the Bible doesn't matter. And read every day because it's magnificent how much we can learn about ourselves by doing so. The temple is the core of our soul is who and what we truly are. It's the essence of spirit that we all entail. Jesus comes in on the path of perfect peace that passes all understanding, fully realized, all thoughts and feelings lining up, everyone putting down their leaves and their coats, surrendering everything that ever stood in the way of realizing the one, and then he looks around the temple, the core of who we are to get ready to cleanse it. We are eternal in spirit and we are eternal in many other ways. And that is basically what this story means. Our ability to step up, to master our own stubbornness, to sometimes fight against our spirituality, and to enter the habitation of peace, to find the core of who and what we are. And if we do so proudly and knowingly, then everything in the universe will just line up. That's all there is to it. Too late. So how can we apply all this in our lives? I promised you I would talk a little bit about the war in Ukraine because it's very difficult to use a story like that, I find, and then apply it to something so real and horrible, like what's happening right now, isn't it? Any war, whether it's Ukraine or the Afghan war or any war that ever happens, is is always terrible and should never happen. But it's an expression of our own inability to harmonize with each other. First and foremost, to harmonize with ourselves. So how do we apply this story to a war? We apply it in that way that we understand that the only way to change war is to be at peace ourselves. We're almost 6,000 miles away from Kiev. 5,800 and something, I looked it up. That's how far away we are. And if you're really honest, if you're like me, then that just feels too far away for me to do anything, right? And yet, all the stories, and especially the story of Palm Sunday, is giving us evidence and a clear inclination what is ours to do and is to find peace within ourselves and with each other. And how often do we lose that peace? How often do we fail to be kind and gentle with each other? And how often do we go to war with ourselves without even anyone telling us to? That is how we apply it. That is how we apply this story to say, I'm going to raise myself from the dead and remember who I am, and I'm going to master by stubbornness of failing to remember who and what I truly am, and then I'm going to enter my peace until all my thoughts and feelings are lined up to find the core within myself and celebrate that. And I can do this without anyone's help. Isn't that amazing? You don't need a PhD or a master's or anything like that. All you need is yourself, have some faith, and the ability to think and feel. That's all it takes. We can never obtain peace in the outer world until we make peace with ourselves. The Dalai Lama. We can change this war over there. If anyone in here and anyone online will be at peace for one day without going to war with ourselves, and anyone, I am convinced, we would feel it. Something will change in this world. And if we continue to do that and learn how to do that, it will effectively change the world for the better. Hosanna. I know I cheated. I'm sorry. (laughs) I cheated. I cheated. That's what I do. So let us now move into meditation. And just remember for a moment who and what we are the temple. The church, the rock upon which we build our own. And during this time of meditation, we gather our healing power. We come together as individuals, the perfect expressions of God. We come together as a community, showing the grace of God within ourselves and each other. And we use the shout of Jubilee, the shout of Hosanna. And remember that we are our own Savior. We tap into Christ, the Christ self. And whatever goes on in this world or in our lives... we step back just for a moment we give ourselves the gift of peace we allow ourselves to grow and to surrender we take off off our coats and lay it down in the feet of each other. We take the palm leaves, a a sense of strength, and present it to each other. We look into each other's eyes and smile, and remember that we are Christ. We are Buddha, we are Krishna, nature, universe, God. Together we ride into Jerusalem, allowing ourselves a sense of peace to dwell. We find our own temple. temple in which only one thing exists our eternal spirit so we take that spirit and share it we share it freely because there's nothing that we can do that ever lets us run out of that spirit that we have to give We share it with ourselves, our loved ones, and 6,000 miles away into Ukraine, or wherever we choose. Let us affirm that we are free free from bondage. And we are ready to enter the Promised Land. Let us affirm that we are the people who deserve to awaken, to be at peace, to be loved, to be kind. And extend the same to others. Let us affirm that we no longer go to war. That we'll do whatever we can to be at peace whenever we can think of it. And let us give thanks. Give thanks to the many ways we can serve. Give thanks to the many ways we can receive. And give thanks for this community, a bright shining light in a lot of darkness, capturing all of us in the highest way of being. Because not only this is what and who we are, but we deserve to be that as well. And so it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, Go to unityfortworth.org.